No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello, and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their own nonfiction piece on the page, then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. From Just Desserts comes a story of the contrast between big moments and small gestures, of online dating and childbirth, of lives moving at different paces, where a near stranger knows the right words, and sometimes you get blood on your shoe. Here is Nicole Grevy performing Julia Granaki's Dessert Before Dinner 78. Dessert Before Dinner 78. Dessert Before Dinner 78 wants to meet me for a drink. He sounds surprisingly sweet and funny, and though we've been writing back and forth for a few days now, I'm hesitant. My track record with online dating has been far from stellar. The last man I went out with turned out to be married. I found this out via text message from his wife. <laughs> it is early morning, three days before Christmas. I am sitting at work, listening to explosions in the sky on Spotify and browsing OkCupid, trying to decide if I will close off 2011 by removing my profile and giving up on love. Needless to say, the atmosphere is quite festive. I receive a text from Melissa that says, I don't know if I can do this without drugs. I respond, no one is judging you. Do what is right for you. Who cares what anyone else thinks? Melissa is my close friend of 18 years. The first time I saw her, I was on stage rehearsing for a play, and I peeped this tiny little girl with super long, white blonde, curly hair. She was pretty. A little too pretty to be chatting up my boyfriend, who was also in the auditorium. <laughs> I didn't like her immediately. <laughs> this changed when I found out she was a sound engineer with a dirty sense of humor and a propensity for fast cars and death metal. We became inseparable. After graduation, she would move to L.A. for a boy, and I would move to Philly for a boy. We would talk on the phone sporadically, but never once was it awkward from passing time. When we both moved into the same East Village apartment in 2006, it was like we had never been apart. Then she met Anton. Anton was kind, funny, tall, handsome, and a musician. But most importantly, he was good to Melissa. She finally met someone who treated her the way she deserved to be treated. They were perfect for each other. I can remember sitting on the A train and asking her if she thought he was the one, and she replied with, yeah, I'm going to marry him. <laughs> I chewed on that for a long time, wondering what that felt like. How does one know such a thing? I get another message. This time she says she's in so much pain and she's so tired that she's going to stop texting for a while. I don't blame her. No one said that having a baby would be easy. I tell her to get some rest. I go back to working and waiting waiting to be told when to go to the hospital to provide best friend moral support. This is what I've been charged with. Though this is an honor and I'm touched, I can't help but think that gone are the days of us meandering down the streets of New York City, making fun of breeders and their annoying strollers getting in our way on buses and subways. Gone are the days of late, boozy New York nights without consequence. Gone is our youth! <laughs> Melissa has become in many ways everything we used to despise and make fun of. But I don't resent her for that, for this, not in the least. I mean, this is part of growing up, right? Part of my problem is that I've just been through one of the hardest years of my life. While Melissa managed to get married and get pregnant in the span of two years, simultaneously my seven-year relationship completely unraveled. She has moved forward, and I have taken what feels like many, many steps back. I feel further away than ever before in finding any real direction in my life. 
I'm 36, single, living alone, and cyber-stalking unresponsive men on the worst dating website ever whilst convincing my best friend it is okay to take the fucking epidural! <laughs> this past year, I could have used an epidural in my heart. <laughs> Though I did the leaving in my relationship, it hurt like hell. When I finally had the courage to go on a few dates, I fell for the third person I went out with and got my heart broken. But you can't find love without taking a risk, right? Sometimes you have to shed a few tears to get through the dummies and find Mr. Right. This is what Melissa would tell me. Dessert before dinner 78 sends me a message and wishes me luck. I told him drinks were not possible tonight for obvious reasons. He has this way of talking to me like we're already a couple and keeps referring to Melissa and Anton's child as our niece. It's not offensive or anything. It's, it's actually really cute. I like him, but I'm still unsure. 5 p.m. rolls around and Anton calls, asking me if I can come by the hospital, get their keys, and go to their apartment to pick up a few things that they need for the night. They came in that morning for a doctor's appointment and were unexpectedly admitted, so they don't have their overnight baby birthing starter kit or whatever you call it. So, yes, of course, I'll be right there. Now, since I know she's not going straight into labor, I meander. I check out the tree at Rockefeller Center. I run in real quick to sniff out the sales of anthropology, because obviously I need another candle that smells like a forest on a rainy day with a dash of elderberry and a hint of overpriced pretentious bullshit, because I am a New York City woman and this is what I spend my hard-earned cash on. <laughs> I arrive at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in Hell's Kitchen. It's not a big hospital, which is sort of a relief. I'm less likely to get lost inside. I follow the signs to the maternity ward and get to Melissa's room at about 6 p.m. Anton is smiling at me brightly and said, I'm so glad you're here. It's happening. Like now. <laughs> My eyes go wide as I take that in. They have a small private room and it's pretty quiet. With Christmas nearly upon us, it's no wonder. Melissa is lying on her side in the hospital bed, succumbing to one of her two addictions, the evening news. The other would be football. If this baby came out in a New York Giants jersey, it would be no surprise. Melissa looks over at me with tired eyes, smiles, and greets me with, Auntie Julia, and then says, It's time for this baby to vacate the premises! <laughs> I'm not necessarily surprised that Melissa is maintaining a sense of humor. After all, she is numb from the waist down. But still, it's, it's just so her. I help her put her hair in a bun to keep it out of her face and have a seat next to her bed. She then tells me that she can't wait to push this baby out because she's starving and she's been fantasizing about Boston Market for the last eight hours. <laughs> Anton assures her that he saw one down the street and Boston Market will most certainly happen. Good man. A tiny Asian woman with dark brown hair enters the room and introduces herself as Dr. Wong. I like her immediately. She's definitely got that, I am in charge, but I'm compassionate type of attitude. Okay, Mama, we're going to prep you. Your contractions are close enough together to start pushing, she says. At this moment, I am expecting to be ushered off to the waiting room to quietly wait for the baby to arrive. But when the doctor, when the doctor asks who is going to be present, Melissa names Anton and me. What? <laughs> Perhaps this is where I should mention that I hate kids. Okay, hate is a strong word. I don't hate kids. I just, I'm not, just not used to them. What if I break the baby? Dr. Wong is ecstatic that I'm sticking around because they are short-staffed due to the holiday and my help is going to be needed. I'm going to be her nurse. Awesome. Perhaps this is where I should mention that I hate blood. Well, hate is a strong word, but no, no, I do. I hate blood. 
Dr. Wong begins to give Antonomy instructions on how to help Melissa push. We reach up and prop her up, which is not easy because she is basically dead weight. <laughs> I try not to laugh. Melissa gets me the stink eye. <laughs> we are then instructed to grab each of her legs, pull them to either side in a sort of squatty, frog-like position, holding her feet and giving her leverage to push. Then we are told to watch the heart monitor for the baby. Every time it reaches a certain number, we are supposed to tell Melissa to push. Dr. Wong sits with us as we wait for the numbers on the monitor to go up, and we do our first push together. She says, great job, keep at it, and leaves. Wait! Where's she going? Are we really going to be left to our own devices with these brief instructions? But shortly thereafter, the monitor indicates that it's time. I look at Anton, and he tells Melissa to push, and she does. This is kind of fun. I'm feeling confident. Excited. The three of us are cracking jokes, and Melissa keeps yelling, Vacate the premises! <laughs> but then I feel her grab my hand tightly. It's such a small gesture, and, and I don't think she knows she is doing it, but I can sense all of her trust and love, and for the first time, just a little fear. A feeling comes over me that is difficult to articulate. It seems as though I am suddenly experiencing the past, present, and future all at once. I'm overcome with memories of beach trips in Melissa's ancient Honda CRX hatchback, blasting Daft Punk out her gangster subwoofer in the back, by chance meeting with Mark Sandman before a morphine concert, and of course all the heartbreak and disappointments we shared. But then I'm looking into the future and I see this baby taking her first steps, birthday cards, phone calls, prom, but here I am squeezing Melissa's hand right back and I realize that I will know this family for the rest of my life. Oh, fuck, I'm getting sentimental. <laughs> Dr. Wong is back to check on us. I am relieved until she gives me a handful of ketchup-sized packets of lube and tells me to squeeze them <laughs> under her gloved hands. This is my new job. Apparently, this, along with the doctor continuously stretching Melissa open with her uber-lubricated hands, will prevent her from tearing once the baby's head finally crowns. Hot. <laughs> a couple of months earlier, Melissa was faced with the fact that her belly was not only obscuring her feet from view, but it was also preventing her from doing any kind of ladyscaping. When she mentioned this to her loving husband, he asked... Babe, can't Julia do that for you? <laughs> of course, Melissa shared this piece of husbandly wisdom. We laughed and marveled at Anton's ridiculous expectation that I, as part of my best friend baby mama duty, was expected to groom her pubes. And yet here I am, and there it is in its entire baby birthing glory. Considering the present circumstances, I am now unsure if the request was that unreasonable. <laughs> Dr. Wong is called away to another room. We are left to the pushing again, which we are doing very successfully at this point. And after one particularly long and rigorous endeavor, Melissa pulls me in close and says, I pooped, didn't I? <laughs> I look over at the bed and look back at her and said, yep, you literally shit the bed. Out of nowhere, a nurse appears. There's a nurse on duty! <laughs> she removes the brow from downtown and wipes Melissa all fresh and clean like a poop removal fairy. <laughs> he walks the doctor again and checks Melissa. The baby is crowning. She grabs Melissa's hand and places it on the baby's head, which is just barely visible. There are only two words to describe this picture. 
strange, and impossible. Surely something so big is not going to fit through that opening. <laughs> Dr. Wong proceeds to instruct Melissa to push when she says push and to make sure she stops when she says stop. It is very important you pay attention, Mama. This will prevent tearing. If there is one thing I have picked up from this experience, it is that tear prevention is paramount. <laughs> she then tells Melissa that once she has passed the baby's shoulders, the most difficult part, she is to reach over and pull the baby out and then place it on her belly. As in, Melissa is expected to pull the baby out of her own vagina. Apparently this is some kind of early bonding method. <laughs> there is a moment of silence. <laughs> Melissa looks at me, mirroring my look of, you have got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> yeah, no thank you, Melissa says. Yeah, I think we'll skip that part, thanks, I say. Anton and I brace Melissa's, Melissa's legs, and the doctor yells, push! Now stop! The doctor stretches and stretches the opening around the baby's head. We repeat, repeat, and keep repeating until finally the baby's head begins to fully emerge. Okay, Mama, this is it. Home stretch. I want you to make the next push really count, Dr. Wong exclaims. Anton leans in and whispers into Melissa's ear and strokes her head. I look away, feeling like I've intruded on something private and pray that one day I'm lucky enough to have a strong and healthy relationship like this. Papa, get back in position. Mama, make this one count. Now push! And out comes the head and shoulders. It's all baby torso and a big-ass head. Looks like Bato from the original Total Recall. I keep expecting it to look at me and say, Quaid, start the reactor. But then... Just like in the movies, the doctor sticks that little spout in its mouth, and we hear Josie's first cry. You did it, Mama. The shoulders are out. Then without a moment's hesitation, Melissa reaches over and snatches that baby right out of her own vagina. <laughs> so much for skipping that part. <laughs> little Josie is finally here, and she is beautiful and perfect. This is where Dr. Wong pulls out the needle and thread and begins to stitch Melissa up. So much for lube and tear prevention. <laughs> Feeling queasy, I look down and see blood on my shoe. <laughs> for the first time tonight, I think I might be sick. Auntie Julia needs to sit down. <laughs> I watch the hospital room bustle with Dr. Wong and the nurse using different instruments to run tests on Josie and Melissa. A series of different hospital employees enter to take care of some paperwork and such, though some just stop by to say Merry Christmas and congratulations. Anton is busy dialing family and giving updates. He is ecstatic. Once my nausea has subsided, I give everyone hugs and set out to do what I came there to do originally. Take their keys, grab their overnight bag, and bring it back to the hospital. While in the meantime, Anton picks up some Boston Market. I'm home by 10 p.m., the adrenaline, excitement, and elation has worn off. I'm standing in my kitchen trying to decide if I'm hungry or not, and I find that I am sad. Too sad to eat. I reflect upon my life and conclude that I am a failure. Just two months ago, I stood in the same spot crying over my bacon and eggs, asking God, please, please, just tell me what to do and I'll do it, and now is not much different. I am lost, confused, and regretful of my life. I overstayed in my last relationship because I didn't have the courage to leave. I'm a terrible actor and an awful writer, and to top it off, I'm not doing any of the things I came to New York to do. Furthermore, I'm a loser in an invisible race to the altar, to, to having kids, and I don't even want kids, but I'd like to
least meet someone I might consider having kids with. <laughs> Lastly, I have lost my best friend. She's a mom, and things will never be the same. Just as I'm about to tragically slump onto my couch in a quiet fit of dramatic tears, I'm interrupted by a message alert from my phone. Dessert before dinner, 78 writes, just checking in. I was reading some of the poetry on your website. Hashtag winning, hashtag amazing. You are beautiful and talented. Wow. P.S. How is our niece? <laughs> this makes me smile. I take a deep breath, swallow my tears, and decide I will meet him for a drink after all. Like Melissa said, you cannot find love without taking a risk and maybe getting a little blood on your shoe. The mortification of missing a question on a television game show calls the narrator's sense of self and worth into question. Here's Julia Granaki performing Nicole Grevy's story, Smart. The expression, just desserts, is one that is usually spoken correctly, but spelled wrong. The proper spelling of dessert in this case is D-E-S-E-R-T. It's a phrase that uses an archaic word, dessert, spelled like desert but pronounced like dessert. <laughs> it means that which is deserved. The proper spelling of just desserts is one of many things I know, because I used to think I was smart. In my 40 years on this earth, there are many things I have wished I were. Tall, <laughs> thin, an elusive state eternally defined as five pounds less than what I am now. Beautiful, sexy, which is very different from pretty or beautiful, as the lead singer of the Australian duo of the Divinals, soul hit I Touch Myself 1990, made clear. <laughs> Popular, or at least comfortable enough in my own skin not to care that I wasn't, but smart that I was, that I knew. I knew it in the first grade when my teacher cut the cover off my Sam and Ann book so I wouldn't know that I was being started on book five while the rest of the class had book one. Of course, I knew right away, as did the rest of the class. I knew it when I calculated the 6% Pennsylvania sales tax on purchases. $3.50 guppy with tax, $3.71 before the cashier had rung up the register. <laughs> By fourth grade, when I took the gifted test, Though they didn't call it gifted, they called it special interest, so as not to make the average kids feel bad. Being smart was as part of my identity as my eyes, my hair, my left-handedness. Percentage of left-handed people in the population, 10. <laughs> I had no athletic abilities. My sole foray into romance during sophomore, sophomore year, sophomore, etymological meaning wise fool, lasted uh, less than four months, and not being invited to any of the after parties, I spent my graduation night with my parents and grandparents. But the knowledge I had a little more in the brains department than my more socially adept peers was comforting. Now it was time for my smart self to take the world by storm. By my 30s, I began to suspect that knowing lots of things might not be the advantage I expected. <laughs> knowing where the Industrial Revolution began, Great Britain, didn't land me a good job. Knowing the Nordic goddess of love, Freya, didn't save my first serious relationship. 
Knowing the 11 horses that won the Triple Crown, <laughs> Sir Barton, Gallant Fox, Omaha, War Admiral, Council of Rule White, Assault, Citation, Secretary of State Law, affirmed, <laughs> didn't make me any less late when the subway trains weren't running. <laughs> well, okay. There's one place where knowing a lot of things is an advantage. At age 38, I started to think about how to get on a game show. <laughs> Specifically, a general trivia show. Now, the gold standard of them all these days is Jeopardy, which I thought about attempting to test for, but it films in California, third largest state after Alaska and Texas. <laughs> <laughs> My stepmother pressured me for years to get on Cash Cab. No matter how many times I explained to her that it's not a real cab and you don't just randomly hail it on some rainy afternoon. <laughs> Taking care of my newborn son, my newborn son, I saw a lot of Who Wants to Be a Billionaire, a Millionaire, excuse me, debuted in Britain, original working title, Cash Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> it was on at the laundromat where I washed his diapers, and it was on at the gym where I attempted to get back something resembling my pre-pregnancy stomach. Gymnasium, Greek word meaning place to get naked. <laughs> Game shows like Millionaire are like crack for people who have a gift for remembering facts. The high of knowing something most of the audience doesn't, the noble gas argon preserves the original Declaration of Independence. I mean, who doesn't know that? It gives you such a high that you forget all the questions you didn't know, like, well, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but you see. So in the quiet panic of realizing I had become exactly what my mother was, a stay-at-home mom, I decided to try out for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. The show tapes here in New York at the ABC Studios. American Broadcasting Company, first television broadcast, 1948. You sign up online, get an appointment, and then, with about 100 other people, show up in order to take a 10-minute, 30-question, multiple-choice test. I was good at tests. It was something else I had chalked up to being smart. But it had been a long time since I last held a number two pencil, and I was nervous. I kept going back and changing answers. Macau, located in Asia. No, Africa. No, Asia. Asia? Oh, Asia. Supergroup, biggest hit in the heat of the moment. <laughs> 1982. Now stop. Focus. Macau is in Asia. After the test, they run your answers and announce the people who passed, assigning you numbers so the people who didn't pass won't feel singled out. Kind of the special interest of game show audiences. <laughs> In my group, 10 of us passed. Then you interview on camera to make sure you're not a crazy person, and six weeks later, you get a postcard in the mail saying you've been put into the contestant pile. Knowing I was in, I proceeded to prepare the shit out of the next few months. I DVR'd every episode of Millionaire and watched and rewatched for patterns or trends and question topics. Every time I knew an answer, rather than feeling smug and superior, I despaired. There went something else I knew. Questions I didn't know were worse. What if I got one of those? Yeah. What if I got one of those? While I knew Howard Rourke's occupation, architect, I didn't know the name of Bruno Mars's last album. My brain became like a frantic trap. Anything I read or saw might be a fact I would need later, so I had to remember it. On a stroll in Central Park, my son laughed as the sun through the leaves cast dapples on his hands. I fretted, trying to come up with mnemonic devices to help me remember the quote beneath the statue of Daniel Webster. 
liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. Because I had to do well on Millionaire. I had to. After all, I was one of the smart ones. In late September, I got the call. And the following Thursday, with my dad, stepmom, aunt, and good friend from high school in tow, I went to the ABC building to use the skill I'd been building my whole life. The one that made me a straight-A student without much effort. The one that earned me enough scholarship money to stay in college when we couldn't afford it. And now I would get to show it off to the nation. And then we came back the following Tuesday because game shows keep oodles of contestants waiting, so no matter whether people play well or poorly, they have enough people to fill up a full day of shooting. But that was okay. I told myself that my father losing his wallet on Thursday was a sign I wouldn't have done well, and that Meredith Vieira having a cameo on Doctor Who that Saturday night, Doctor Who debuted November 23rd, 1963, the day after the Kennedy assassination, was definitely a sign I would do well the following Tuesday. Tuesday morning, as I, as I got ready in the pre-dawn darkness, I slammed my foot into a five-pound hand weight my, to my toddler had thoughtfully rolled into the middle of the floor and hear a soft snap. My first thought was, shit! And my second thought was, how much is five pounds in kilograms? <laughs> <laughs> so I was late to the studio and ended up at the back of the line for the second day. But this time, I got on. By late afternoon, I was on stage facing the enormous screen, aware that I was tired, terrified, and my foot was killing me. So, said Meredith Vieira, I heard you were studying hard at the show, for the show. Yes, I said dutifully, performing the spontaneous banter the production assistant had mapped out for me. And I took a break Saturday night to watch Doctor Who, and then who would be on it, talking about the Holy Roman Emperor? But you, it was like you were telling me to get back to studying. <laughs> was I good? She asks. You were awesome, I said sincerely. And the studio audience cheered. And we started the game. First question. What TV show recently fired bad boy Charlie Sheen? Okay, that one was easy. Two and a half men filed it under shows that are impossible to avoid. <laughs> Second question. What star after the sun is closest to the earth? Not one I knew, but among the four choices was Proxima Centauri. Latin, Proxima meaning nearest to or next to, so I felt secure about that one. I don't remember the third question. They say that when traumatic events happen to you, you often forget what happens immediately before or after. <laughs> Fourth question, which I do remember. In fact, I will never forget. This beauty school dropout attended cosmetic school before going into music. Four choices. Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Jennifer Lopez, and Pink. I had no idea! I had three lifelines, two jumps, and one ask the audience, all of which I had been hoping to save for the classic millionaire round. What I needed to say was, I'd like to jump this one. What I said was, I'd like to ask the audience. <laughs> and so the audience picked up their little keyboards, or whatever the hell it is they vote on, and made their best guess. In our orientation, the producer warned us about using the ask the audience carefully, and I had not used it carefully. As the results showed me, Pink had 47% of the vote, 
and the next highest vote was 27%. Total, 74%. You should not trust the audience unless they are well over 70% in agreement. But I could still jump the question. I didn't jump the question. <laughs> in retrospect, it seems so foolish, so reckless. But I had planned, I had studied, I had strategized, and I did not want to blow two lifelines on the fourth question. And really, Pink had a clear lead over the other choices, and, and, and beauty school dropout was in quotes. And that made me think about Greece and how when Frankie Avalon sang the song to Dee Dee Khan, her hair was pink, so maybe it was a hint. Well, I said, I came here to play, so D, pink, final answer. Meredith Vieira's sorry face is heartbreaking to behold. You almost feel bad for her instead of yourself. I remember being led off to the dressing room to change out of my dress carefully, uh, balancing on my one good foot, all the while hearing a refrain in my head of a word I didn't usually associate myself with. Stupid, stupid, stupid! That word became a mantra over the next weeks, months even. I couldn't believe I had been so stupid. I had failed because I wasn't smart. My toe healed, but my spirit didn't. Don't think about it, my stepmom said. But as my whole identity had been based on being someone who could think, I, it was all I could do. And the memory of other failures in my life, and there have been plenty, came crowding in. And for my not knowing about the early cosmological career of Mariah Carey became a symbol for everywhere I wasn't in my life. I wasn't the best or even good at anything. I was one of the failures. A few months after my soul-crushing defeat, a friend of mine had a baby. The delivery did not go well, and she had a stroke. I visited her in the hospital after she'd been through the battery of tests to assess how bad the damage was, and she said to me, I thought of you while I was getting the MRI. Uh, the MRI. I was in the machine for three hours, and the whole time while I was trying to stay calm, I thought that if you can get through what happened on Millionaire, I can get through this MRI. I've <laughs> 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 done a lot of uh, equivalent equations. <laughs> and I know that tanking on game show does not equal stroke. <laughs> comfort from my experience, not from the failure, which is all I saw, but from what she saw, which was courage to, to keep standing up in the face of failure, that, more than my family's boundless sympathy, more than any of the rationalizations I tried to tell myself, I was tired, and my toe was broken, it was an unfair question. <laughs> my friend's words, spoken at a time when we didn't even know if she would fully recover, was the balm that started to heal my own self-inflicted wound. I had clung so tightly to a belief that what made me a valuable person was something over which I had no control. The ease at which my brain grasped and held onto facts, concepts, ideas. But what makes us valuable are the qualities that we aren't born with, things we choose to be. Courageous, kind, patient, Protective, assertive, forgiving. 
It is the quality of the actions we take, not the qualities given us before we are born that makes us a person good and worthwhile. It doesn't matter that I know the correct spelling of just desserts. Better that I understand what it tells us, that we all get to come up and sit some point. Sometimes it happens when there's no one around, and sometimes it happens in front of a live studio audience, and then later an audience of millions, but hey! <laughs> a famous writer, I don't remember who, once said that he found life was one long lesson in humility. And humble pie isn't the worst dessert. Sometimes it's positively inspiring. After my Millionaire episode aired, I couldn't bring myself to watch it, but my family reassured me I looked very pretty. <laughs> my uncle said, you know, I, I love that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? You, you should try out for that. <laughs> try out for Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, I asked. I don't know. I'm not sure I am. And I'm really okay with that. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com. <laughs>